You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. There's a lot going on in our world. In fact, so much so that you might have found yourself either out loud or subconsciously or whispering or perhaps shouting at some screen somewhere, what in the world is going on? Why is everything so jacked up and getting worse? I've had it. Oh, that's right. I have social media too. I've seen your Facebook posts. I've seen your angry little memes. I've seen all the stuff that you're talking about and what you're putting out there. I've seen how angry so many of us are at how the world just isn't operating like it should. And by should, I mean according to your preferences and processes. I mean, if everybody just thought and did stuff the way you did, wouldn't this be a better world? Amen. I mean, finally, someone at least admitted it out loud. First, they're like, no, I just love Jesus. That's great. But the reality is most of us, at least on social media and in casual conversations, we really feel like, gosh, the world is so jacked up. If people would just see the world through my eyes, think my thoughts after me, then we could all get along. Well, actually, what the Bible's going to tell us is if we all did that, the world would be a flaming crater of volcanic destruction because that's how good of a person you and I both are. There's so much rhetoric. If you haven't noticed, people that carry the same passport and sing the same national anthem are increasingly galvanized in their polarization so that it's like we we don't even speak the same language anymore. Our anger at one another seems now to be almost insurmountable. And hey, good news, at least there's a presidential election coming up soon. So you're not going to hear anything about that for the next 13 months. Oh, dear God, come Lord Jesus. And it just gets thicker and worse and thicker and worse. And then to really top it all off, most of us, just saying, because of our default lethargy and apathy and self-absorption, We tend to surround ourselves with media outlets that do agree with us, that amplify and encourage our polarized views and just make us angrier and angrier and angrier so that we drive down the road with white knuckles, teeth clenched, waiting to discuss everybody's ancestry that's in a lane next to us. I've seen you driving too. I know how it is. That's kind of what's going on in the world. But actually... There's a deeper, more insidious problem. The problem is not that we simply can't seem to agree on what's more important. Is it the environment? Is it climate change? Is it the rights of the unborn? Is it civil rights? What what is it? I, I work in a coffee shop. And so I get the opportunity to talk with a lot of different people from every culture and class and socioeconomic status and demographic background you can imagine. I I got everybody from young millennials and Generation Zs all the way up to hmm, those who are crowned with silver, the greatest generation, and everything in between. And somewhere right in the middle is Art Riley, for those of you who know Art. It's always a box of chocolates dealing with art. But somewhere in the middle, I get to have all these different conversations. And what I hear is, on this side, 
the most significant issue in the world is. And I'll say, well, okay, I get it. So the environment and climate change, it's the biggest thing. Can't we all just get along? And I say, yes, we can. But what about the people who don't care about that, who care about that? Well, to hell with them. I'm like, whoa, what happened there? That was a pretty fast departure from can't we all just get along? Well, yeah, because that's the thing that matters. Oh, I see. But they think that this other issue, the rights of the unborn or this other, that matters. Oh, that's bigotry. Whoa. And so you see that there's all of this mistrust and distrust. There's a whole lot of fruit that is produced, but we're going to sort of try to navigate through and wade through all that stuff and not look at the fruit, all the symptoms that are going on. We want to dive right down to the root this morning and have this passage identify the malignancy that has impacted every single one of us. This morning, we're going to stop looking at just these symptoms, and we're going to look at the central issue. It is our big idea for the morning. It goes like this. Sin is the problem. Or perhaps said better, sin is the problem. My hope as I was looking through this passage, preparing and praying and studying all week long, is that all of us would walk out of this room looking at the world through a different set of thoughts and eyes that would say, oh, I see what's going on there. It's not that they're dumb. It's not that they're ill-informed. It's not that they're angry. It's, it's, there's a sin problem. We need for that to be resolved. So we are in the book of Romans. I'll invite you to turn to Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. We'll read through verse 20. As you're going to Romans chapter 3, Verse 9, I want to remind you our overarching theme of the book of Romans. It is the righteousness of God given freely to man in the person of Jesus Christ. Now that is incredibly important, particularly when this text is going to tell us that sin is the problem. But all of Romans, and therefore all of the Bible, is telling us that the righteousness of God has been given freely to man in the person of Jesus Christ. So Romans chapter 9, I'm sorry, chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. Paul writes, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is, a full of, is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace, they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who were under the law, so that... Every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is God's word. This is a pretty weighty indictment on the entire human race. But I want you to be reminded that this indictment on humanity is a part of the gospel. Our working, walking around definition for the gospel at this campus is the gospel is the good news, the great story, the awesome announcement of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. This is our eighth sermon on the book of Romans thus far. Way back in chapter 1 verse 15, Paul said, I am eager to preach to you the gospel. 
And then he's taken chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, to issue and declare the doctrine of condemnation. Because that is the front end of the gospel. (laughs) This is our eighth sermon in Romans, and the last five of which have all been about sin. In other words, this is the fifth Sunday in September. September has been all about sin. Yay! Or as the old preachers used to say, it's September, but October's coming. It's September, but October's coming. This morning, Lord willing, we get to round out and finish the doctrine of condemnation and finish talking about Paul's fully orbed doctrine of human sin. Next week, it's October. We get to push through and really get sort of the the good side and the glory of the gospel. So I want to talk about these verses very briefly. We're going to walk through them, unpack them, and we'll see how we can apply them. Chapter 3 and verse 9. Paul says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. What's going on there? Paul has been making this lengthy statement that, hey, yes, the Jews have privilege because they are the original recipients of the oracles of God. They are God's chosen nation. But those privileges and that national status was national, not individual. An individual Jewish person has no better standing than a, Jew- than a Gentile person. We all have exactly the same ground on which we stand. There is no moral high ground, whether you are Jewish or Gentile. I still hear people who are today who are Gentiles go, gosh, I just wish I was Jewish. They go, Romans 2 says you are. That's, that's, a, that's a strange thing to ask for. No, 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 no. There is no difference. We have charged that all are under sin, both Jews and Greeks. Why does Paul say Greeks? That's kind of weird. Well, the thought had been, hey, listen, the Jews are the most moral of people. And yet he's taken the end of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2 to say, listen, they are under sin. They stand condemned. Their privilege and their pretense and their procedure does them no good before God whatsoever. And then the Greeks, the idea is Paul's making an argument for the many from the greater. If the Jews have no standing before God on their own, then maybe at least the Greeks, because they're the, I mean, they're the, they're the next iteration of social evolution. They invented democracy, and they're educated, and they have artistic expression, sure. But no, everybody is under sin. And if the Jews and the Greeks are under sin, then that means by extension, everybody else in the world is under sin as well. Well, Paul says under sin. What does it mean? Paul's never used this expression before, under sin, and he'll never use it again. It's a unique expression to this passage. So what does he mean, under sin? Well, many of us, either socially or in church, have been brought up with the notion that being sinful means that we do some bad things or there are some good things that we fail to do. But that's incomplete. That makes it sound like we we sin and so that makes us sinners. That's not the story of the Bible. No, no. We are sinners, and therefore we sin. That's what it means to be under sin. All that we can do in our own strength is produce sin. We are slaves to sin, Paul will say. Sin is our master. It dictates, drives, and determines every single thought, word, and deed that we do. He'll go on in Romans uh, chapter 13 and say, Sin is anything we do apart from faith. 
Anything that proceeds apart from faith is sin. Even the good and moral and decent and nice things that we do apart from faith, it's sin. Paul will elaborate on this in Romans chapter 7. He's going to spend a lot of time on it in Philippians chapter 3. And he says, essentially, a Christian is not merely someone who repents of their sin. A Christian is someone who repents of their own self-righteousness. Now, for many of us, that is revolutionary in thinking. Because a lot of us have been taught, hey, you're bad-ish, but if you just stop doing that bad stuff and say you're sorry for the bad stuff that you have done, God's going to be okay with you. No. A Christian, Paul says, is I repent of all my own self-righteousness. The very best stuff I could do, Paul says, is filthy rags. I count it, not neutral, I count it as loss, sin held against me. That's how big of a deal sin is. Sin is the problem. So what exactly is sin? What does it mean to be under sin? Well, first and foremost, sin is a wrecked relationship with God. It is a separation from God. This whole passage is bookended. Chapter 3, verses 10 and 11 are about separation from God. It ends with separation from God. Separation is a biblical euphemism for death. That's what death always is. It's separation. When you physically die, body and soul separate. It was never what God wanted or intended, but there is a separation. That's death. Ultimate death is separation for eternity from soul and God. We don't want that, of course. Separation is what the Bible means by death. What's so very interesting is this passage shows that under sin means a wrecked relationship with God. Our vertical relationship is torn apart. But what that means is how that manifests itself is all of our horizontal relationships are therefore wrecked as well. With our families, with our coworkers, with our neighbors, with people with whom we disagree, all of our horizontal relationships are wrecked. Again, that's what's so interesting about dealing with a lot of younger generations there is so much influence and emphasis on community 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 we have to just love one another at all costs we have to love others and i say right but what if they don't care about the environment well i'm not going to love them oh I, i see so they have to agree with your position on this particular issue for you to love them well i didn't say that i'm just saying if they would be right then i would love them oh okay oh on the other side Older generations, those people over there, if they would care about the rights of the unborn and stop eating avocado toast, I would love them. But not until they do, because they just make me so mad. Why don't they just see things the way they should be? I remember back in my day when B. Arthur was still, whoa, whoa, whoa. You don't have to look at the world that way. Our vertical relationship that has been wrecked is impacting our horizontal relationships. And what the Bible is going to say is there's no way to redeem all of these horizontal relationships until the vertical relationship with God is restored. That's why we say, hopefully every week, the gospel is the good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and therefore to one another. Because by the way, that's what this world is desperate to experience They just reject the one way to actually have it. Well, this passage is used to rightly summarize and to teach very often the doctrine of total depravity. Now, I know for some of you that two-word combination, total and depravity, makes you very uncomfortable because it sounds like five-point Calvinism and you go, I'm not going to listen to that stuff. Those people are bad. John Calvin, bad, bad, bad. Well, just relax. Take a seat. This is not Calvinism. This is Paulism. 
Paul existed for 1,500 years before John Calvin was ever born. This comes right out of Paul in Romans chapter 3. If you don't like total depravity, fine. I have the new Eric translation. I call it utter jacked upness. <laughs> Same idea. Utter jacked upness. And it's true of every single one of us. Paul says total depravity or utter jacked upness is that that's what our species is, is under sin. It's all that we do. To be clear, though, it's not saying that we are as, we're, let me put it this way. We're not as bad as we could be, but we're not nearly as good as we should be. We're not utterly depraved. We do some decent moral things, but apart from faith, it is filthy rags. It's actually counted as loss. On our own, we are ultimately and utterly unrighteous. We are under sin. It has brainwashed, heartwashed, and soul-washed us. It determines how we think, what we say, what we do. Then, beginning in verse 10, Paul is going to string together six Old Testament passages. Rapid fire, staccato burst, bam, 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 bam. Six Old Testament quotes. This is what the rabbis would call stringing pearls together. Six very quick Old Testament citations. Five are from the Psalms, from the Psalms of David. The last one is from Isaiah. It's difficult to tell who exactly David is referencing. Is he talking about Jewish people or the Gentile enemies of God? Yes is really the, the answer. Now the sixth quotation from Isaiah is definitely directly referencing the nation of Israel by Isaiah. But Paul's going to build a case here for the total depravity and the lostness of all humanity. Beginning in chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says, As it is written, he's going to refer to Old Testament scripture. None is righteous, no, not one. Everybody is unrighteous. Paul's going to quote from Psalm 14. He's going to quote from Psalm 53, written by David. Where David, looking at the landscape a thousand years before Paul says, there is nobody who's righteous. In other words, everybody is unrighteous, everybody. And just about the time that Paul writes this, you remember Murray? Our imaginary objector, because Paul is still in the style of diatribe. He's created an imaginary objector. His name is Murray. In Greek, it's Murios. Murray says, wait a minute, wait a minute. No one's righteous? No one? What about my grandmother? That woman was a saint. Paul nips it in the bud. There is no one who is righteous. Murray says, what about my grandma? He goes, no, not one. That woman was a sin-soaked scumbag, Murray. Not grandma. Yeah, grandma. Left to her own devices, she is under sin. And we had best be ready to think of ourselves and those around us that way. Sin is the problem. Sin is the problem. There is none who is righteous. No, 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 not even one, he says. Verse 11, no one understands, no one seeks for God. This is one of those verses where I usually don't make friends nor influence people, but it's biblical. We believe in the inspiration of Scripture and what Paul says here, and so this is truth. Much of the Old Testament wisdom literature, by that I mean Ecclesiastes, Psalms, Proverbs, and Job, has a repeated refrain. And it goes like this, the fool says in his heart or her heart that there is no God. That's a consistent refrain, the fool says there is no God. Paul essentially just called the entire human race fools. <laughs> he can get away with that. He's an apostle and he's dead. 
I want to be a little bit more delicate, but what I'm saying is Paul says, the fool says in his heart there is no God. Paul says nobody seeks after God. He quotes that to say is everyone is foolish because nobody is considering the things of God. Now that's important to understand because all of us probably know somebody in our family, our friend network, in our community, our coworkers, who claim to be very spiritual. Oh, I'm not religious, but I'm a very spiritual person. Okay, that's great. But what does that actually mean? You're seeking after some spiritual truth. That's nice, I suppose, but Paul is making sure to very succinctly give us a very low anthropology. And it's completely consistent with the diagnosis of the rest of Scripture. In fact, some 550 years before Paul, the prophet Jeremiah writes this stinging indictment. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? In Hebrew, the word for heart, lev, is essentially synonymous with the mind, the heart, the soul. It's the seat of emotions and thinking. And it is deceitful above all things. Nobody on their own, understands naturally that there is a single sovereign God who exists eternally in three persons. That's just not where any of our human philosophies or minds will ever, ever take us. Nobody understands on their own, by default, that there is such a thing as human sin, that it's universal, and that because of that, every human being is accountable to that single eternal God who exists in three persons. Nobody is seeking after God, at least, the true God who is singular and sovereign and who exists eternally in three persons. There is no one that seeks him. Now that's really interesting. There is no one that seeks him. It's funny because I still hear to this day about so many churches who are seeker sensitive. They are accommodating a person who does not exist. There is no one who's seeking after God. There are those who are seeking after some sort of spiritual truth or some sort of solution to the jacked upness of the world around them. But there is no one who is seeking by default the one true God who eternally exists in three persons. Nobody. And so what we find is a whole bunch of churches are seeker sensitive. They are compromising and adapting to somebody who does not even exist to the detriment of the rest of the flock. We want to be really careful not to do that. It actually minimizes the intent of the church. Well, Paul's going to continue showing that wrecked relationship vertically with God. Now we're going to see verse 12. Things take a turn for the worse. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Societally, culturally, the zeitgeist of the population begins to say, wait a minute, we are God. We don't need some outside sovereign being. We can do this. And the consequence is they have become worthless, chaff, blown away, no matter, no weight, no substance. No one does good, but wait, no, not even one. Nobody does good. Now Paul's going to show us the two different categories of how our horizontal relationships get wrecked. Our vertical relationship is wrecked we are separate from God, now it manifests itself into a horizontal catastrophe. Two different ways, words, the things that we say, and works, the things that we do. Paul's going to continue to string these Old Testament passages together to make his point. He says in verse 13 and 14, Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. It's the hardest verse in the Bible to say when you have a lisp, just by the way. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Watch what David is doing that Paul picks up on. There is a progression that springs out of 
the heart. Do you see the progression from the heart? The throat is an open grave. The tongue is full of destruction and deception. The lips have the poison of asps under them. The mouth is bitterness and resentful. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks, is what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6. My dad was a little more clever. He said, boy, what's in the well comes up in the bucket. He had a point there. The sin of our heart manifests itself in our words. Now, listen, I don't mean to make light of this. This is particularly tragic because we are a species that was also uniquely made in the image of God. And how did God very, very first make himself known? Through his word. In the beginning, God. And God said, let there be light. The Word of God was creative. The Word of God was creating. We, made in His image, are supposed to be life-giving agents of creativity and life restoration and regeneration. And instead, look what comes out of our hearts. Our throats are graves. Our tongues are destructive. Our lips are full of bitterness. Our mouths, on the whole, bring death. It's not how it was intended to be. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 11 puts it this way. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. We were created to be givers of life. Don't you want to be around people like that? Don't you want to be thought of as someone whose words bring life and redemption and regeneration? Not someone who brings bitterness and poison and destruction in our natural lostness, the only reason our words are not more vile than they actually are is because of by God's common grace, He has instituted and implemented some system of restraint called law, called society, called reputation that we didn't come up with. God has imposed that. But if you've ever been in a context where governmental and societal constraints are absent, then it is incredible what people will say to one another. I've done prison ministry trips before. It is incredible what some of those things, some of the things that you will hear inside. I've also listened to country music. It's about the same level. It's the same kind of... Again, the vertical relationship inevitably destroys the horizontal relationships. Yes, words can and do hurt us, and sticks and stones do too. Verses 15 through 17. Their feet are swift to shed blood. I have no idea what that means or how that happens. It's a, it's a metaphor. It's not that people are actually kicking one another in the face. No, it's that we move to get in contexts in which we can do violence to one another. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. Human violence is the inevitable outworking of the human heart. The 20th century was the bloodiest century in human history. More people were slain or slaughtered or killed or murdered in the 20th century apart from war than any other century in human history. And remember, the 20th century had some pretty big wars. The Great War, World War I, World War II. We had Civil War in Cambodia. We had the Vietnam War. We had Korea. And still, in the 20th century, more people were killed apart from war than in war. Things are getting better, right? We're figuring this out. No, we have just gotten more technologically advanced at committing violence one against another. It's interesting also that 
the thing that seems to stir the heart of God to, ju- to judgment more than anything else is violence of humans against humans. When Cain kills Abel, God is stirred to wrath. And then it gets worse, it becomes societal. By Genesis 6, God says, I regret that I have made humanity because of their violence. He judges the world with the flood. God hates when image bearers bring violence against other image bearers. And Paul says, that's what we do. That's what it means to be under sin. And maybe we don't think that's actually the way things are, but just, I don't know, drop a hurricane on some people and see what happens in the aftermath when there is the absence of law and restraint, how quickly things turn to looting and killing and all other sorts of heinous crimes. What would happen as you drive down I-20 and there's no such things as the DPS and that semi cuts you off? What would you do if you had no fear of repercussion or consequence? I'll tell you what I would do. There'd be a whole bunch of disappearing semis. I would just hit the button, the earth would open up and they would disappear, just like that. Okay, you're looking at me very judgmentally right now, like it's just me, maybe it is. But what might we be capable of is scary to think left to our own devices. That's the sin of every human heart. Well, verse 18, he gets a little bit more specific. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Here's the height, the apex of human futility and foolishness. We do not respect nor revere God nor view him the way that he deserves. That's what it means to be under sin. We are guilty by our practical outworking, living our lives of ungodding God simply by the way we think, by the ways we speak, by the things that we do. That's what it means to be under sin. Even the good and moral and decent stuff. That's what it means to be under sin. We're brainwashed into the thinking that there is another way to have fulfillment and joy. Any other way than God's way. And we will not have His That's essentially what it means to be under sin is a a refusal and a rejection to find fulfillment in God alone. (laughs) We could do some real quick inventory and say in the last month of your life, where else have you sought fulfillment and joy other than God? And I'll tell you, if we just started with me, it'd be a long afternoon as I recounted all of the ways. Where have you refused rejected finding joy in God, but chosen to find it in anything else less divine. That's what it means to be under sin. Well, Paul's going to land this plane in the last two verses in this doctrine of condemnation, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Paul invokes a courtroom scene. If the Jews who had the law of God have to cover their mouths, how much more so those who didn't have the law also have to cover their mouth? They have no excuse. They have no defense. Paul is sort of referring lightly and loosely here to Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20, where God says to the nation of Israel, the Lord is in his temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. It's Psalm 46, 10. Be still and know that I am God. I know that passage frequently gets used devotionally, like you're just supposed to sit in your breakfast nook and be still and know that he is God. That's delightful, but that's not what's going on in that psalm. That is a war psalm. God's telling the whole earth to shut it and to know that he alone is God. Now you can have devotions on that as well, but understand that he's saying, I am God, and by extension, you are not. Shut your mouth. 
It's Job, in the book of Job, who's told God all the reasons that he is just, and then God says, really? Sit tight, we're gonna have a conversation, and then God talks at him for four chapters, at which point Job covers his mouth and says, I have nothing else to say. I'm so sorry. And God says, great, but I'm not done. Here's four more chapters. You see, in antiquity, whether in Persia, Assyria, Greece, Egypt, Rome, didn't matter, in any of those judiciary settings, when you were giving an offense, when you had nothing else to say, when you were proven guilty, you put your hand over your mouth. You stopped your mouth. You closed your mouth because you said, I have nothing else. And sometimes when you continue to try to defend and justify yourself, the court official would come over and punch you in the mouth as is what happened to Jesus in John 18, and as is what happened to Paul in Acts 23. The court official punched them, saying, you stop your mouth. We will tell you how guilty you are. Paul says, listen, God is the offended party, and he is the judge. A number of years ago, I'll not use names or locations because some of you might uh, remember this, in the DFW Metroplex, a civil engineer for one of the communities there was giving a presentation to the city council on how he was going to recommend the improvement of roads and bridges and infrastructure in that community. He hooked up his laptop and was about to walk through his PowerPoint presentation of the bridges and the roads and the infrastructure of that community when accidentally a whole string of images and videos began to come across the screen and be projected in front of the entire city council of egregious child indecency and he couldn't stop it he went to try to stop it and the computer just froze and kept running it and he couldn't stop it finally he had to just yank the cable out and there he stood and went started as a bad bad presentation turned into an absolute fiasco and illegality he is in jail to this day and when he was in court they asked his defense and he simply said i have nothing to say now, just for a moment, allow yourself to imagine how that would feel. Guilty as sin, dead to rights, red-handed, your offense on screen, that's what Paul means. So that every mouth is stopped because sin is the problem. That is our position before a holy and righteous God. And that's very bad news if that's all there is. But praise be to God, that's not all there is. And Paul says they are without excuse. He's already given three categories of proactive warning. He says in chapter one, I have revealed this to them in creation. He says in chapter one, I have revealed this to them in their conscience. They understand this. I have told them intuitively what right and wrong is, whether Jew or Gentile. And then I have showed them as a case study, the nation of Israel. Three examples of how people should know this. They are not justified on their own. And then just to make it totally clear, verse 20, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. There is nothing a person can do according to the law to be declared righteous in God's sight. Nothing. It's simply a mirror that shows you accurately all of your issue. All of it. So then Paul concludes by saying that the knowledge of sin comes through the law. But he doesn't mean that I didn't know that murder was bad until I read the law. It's not what Paul means. It can't be what Paul means. What Paul means is the law is that which stirs it up in me that makes me want to do it even more. I'll give you an example. Do not, under any circumstances, ever 
Think about a tree. Don't do it. Don't think about a tree. Ah, there's a tree right there. You think about a tree, you go to hell. That's, uh, oh, tree, 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 tree. Don't think about a tree. I'm not kidding. Do not think about a tree. Carlisle, I'll see you. Don't think about a tree. All you can think about is a tree because that's what the law does. You and I can't unthink thoughts. The heart is deceitful above all things. We can't understand it, yada. We can't actually control it. If I say don't think about a tree, you think about a tree. And that's all you can think about. Tree, 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 tree. The mail comes to our house. An envelope lands on the table and it says, for Susan only, Eric, don't read this. And I'm like, <laughs> what is it? What is it? I didn't even know there was a letter. I didn't care. But all of a sudden it says, don't read this. It's for her only. And the law is stirring up something in me that I can't suppress. And because of that, Paul says, that's what the law does. You think you're going to be justified before God because you've kept it? <laughs> the law is showing you just how jacked up and bad that you are. Now he'll go on later and say, the law is not bad. No, it's good. It's actually a grace. But the law can't save anybody. The law has never justified a single human soul because sin is the problem. And it requires a major, major answer. So what do we do with all this? Wow. A lot here as we wrap up this September series on sin and look forward to October. Three quick concluding points just to try to land this plane. Number one, from this passage and from all September, these series, this sermon on sin. Number one goes like this. Your understanding of sin determines your understanding of grace. If you don't understand the depths, the darkness of sin, then you'll never fully understand grace. Yes, it is our fifth sermon in a row through the doctrine of sin, through Paul's doctrine of condemnation. We learn that all human condemnation is just. Any human salvation is grace. So you and I, if we ever start to think that sin is merely some bad choices that we make and that we simply need for God to let some bygones be bygones, then we don't understand the enormity of His grace, His unmerited favor on those that don't just not deserve it, they actually deserve His full unmitigated wrath. Sin is a whole lot more than just marginally messing up from time to time. If I subconsciously think of myself as a pretty good person that hasn't hurt anyone, then again, to quote my old Navy dad, that is irrelevant and immaterial. If I'm a good person that hasn't hurt anybody, so? That doesn't matter. That doesn't mean anything because my offense is before a holy God. I am first and foremost separate from him. I have offended him who also happens to be the judge of the cosmos. And oh, by the way, I also am not a very good person, and I have hurt others. I just don't want to admit it. So before we try to convince ourselves that we're pretty good people that haven't hurt others, let's look at very clearly what the scriptures say that we do. The issue with me being under sin is that I'm separate from God and I am in desperate need of His grace and His mercy and I can't see that unless I understand how dark sin is. That's why Paul gives this lengthy treatment of sin as his opening presentation of the gospel. There is a reason we sing amazing grace. We can't sing amazing grace if we don't understand the depth of sin but there's a reason that no one has ever ever sung somewhat helpful grace. You're not going to find that in your hymn book. Somewhat helpful grace. How sweet-ish is the sound that saved a pretty good person who doesn't hurt people like me. It's never a chart topper. Never going to happen. Second point. Nobody drifts to good. Nobody drifts to good. This is what Paul is saying. 
societally, culturally, in our context, we still seem to operate under the assumption that if we just provide a good enough atmosphere or an environment, people will ultimately find their way to truth and finally all get along. We'll solve this on our own. Look at all of our resources, all of our energy are devoted to creating infrastructure that'll make people finally get along. Yes, we'll throw a little bit of emphasis on the environment. Yes, we'll throw some things on civil rights and we'll just all finally work this out. Except that the trajectory of human history says it's getting bloodier. We're just getting better at being bloody. Isn't that interesting? No, sin is in direct opposition. That's in direct opposition with the story of the Bible that tells us from ancient times that sin is the problem. No amount of social or educational or economic or environmental programming is ever going to put a single soul in a position in which they figure out that there is a single sovereign God who exists eternally in three persons and that their own sin separates them from God, but that God has supplied and sent a satisfactory substitute in the person of Jesus Christ and desires to dwell every believer forever in all eternity nobody ever just goes eureka i think i got it no they go dig up turquoise and they worship it that's the best that humanity can produce on its own nobody ever just gets there because of a good environment nobody seeks god no god must act upon a person and raise the blinds that obscure our view and bring him or her to life and if you're a believer this morning i just want you to know that god has done that to you. God has acted upon you. And you didn't just drift here. You're not the sharpest knife in the drawer, the sharpest kid in the class. God taking a person who is described like that in you and made them a son or a daughter. And so now, yes, the role of the Christian is certainly to bring the kingdom by demonstrating righteousness in the world. Yes, of course. But not just so that people can drift to belief and faith. Now, the people of God, we pray like it's our job that even the ones that vote the wrong way or, too, or who care too much about the wrong issues, that God will do for them what he has done for us. I wonder how much time you spend shaking your fist, either in reality or in your heart, about all those people who are wrong. That instead, when you see them, don't think, well, there but by the grace of God go I. But no, instead say, no, that's me. That's me. But God loved me and he saved me. God, would you do for that person what you have done for me? I promise this community, this world would be a vastly different place if evangelical Christians were characterized as that rather than some particular narrow political affiliation. Those were the people who said, my God, my God, why have you not forsaken me? And would you please not forsake those as well? Third part, third point. The human problem requires a divine solution. Now, if you've come to Bethel for any time at all, you've seen this one before because that's right. I love it. It's one of my favorites. And because it's a master theme of our entire Bible. It shows up in both Testaments over and over and over again. We cannot solve our own issue. We require something from outside must enter in. I don't have a champion living inside of me. <laughs> no, I have a scum-sucking dog dirt bag living inside of me. That's what Paul says in Romans 3. And it needs to die. But there is one who is offering the solution. Sin is the problem. The Son is the solution. Part of the gospel power is that we are powerless to save ourselves, to be declared righteous according to the ultimate standard of righteousness. 
Now, all of those pearls that Paul strings together seem to be at face value nothing more than an indictment of the sin and depravity of humanity. But Paul was no dummy. Every one of those five passages in Psalms and the one from Isaiah all continues on, and Paul knows this, to talk about the mercy of God declaring some righteous. Every one of those Psalms, Psalm 14, Psalm 53, on and on and on through Isaiah 59, all talks about the mercy of God bestowing and manifesting those into righteousness. David himself will talk about their throats are open graves, their mouths are this, their tongues are this, their lips are this, and then David will say, as am I, show me mercy. The human problem requires a divine solution. See, sin is the problem. That's why this passage, even though it's dark and it's about the depravity of man and sin, is so wonderfully hopeful. Because God looks at people like that, like you, like me, and loves us anyway. See, I don't look at people that way. I look at whether or not they agree with me politically or if they can somehow benefit me in my life. God doesn't look at people that way. He just loves them. How much does he love them? 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin. All of the stuff that Paul describes in Romans 3, 9 to 20, the open grave, the destruction, the deceit, the death, the decay, the poison, the malice, the wickedness, for our sake. God made Jesus, who knew no sin ever, never experienced it in the slightest, to be all of that stuff, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Or I'll put it this way. The Son of God became the sin of man so that the sons of man could become the sons of God. This is really good news. And there is no other way. And that's also good news because it is the righteousness of God given freely in the person of Jesus Christ. So I really have to just ask one last question. Has your mouth ever actually been stopped? Have you ever actually been stunned by the reality that you truly need a Savior? Or are you the kind of person that says, gosh, I'm pretty good, I haven't hurt anybody, I just need a little bit of boost, a little, little nudge, because I have made a few bad choices, but I mean, come on, I'm not that bad, at least I'm better than all of them. My goodness, at least I'm not French. Maybe you've never actually had to stop your mouth and realize, I'm guilty, I'm dead to rights, red-handed, guilty of sin. I have no other recourse. If that's you, maybe though you've been in church your whole life, I invite you to believe that what God demands of you, His righteousness, He gives you freely. And what He hates in you, your sin, He removes fully from you and applies it to His Son. I invite you to believe that. That means that he is already doing a work in you if you can, in the slightest capacity, understand that. For the rest of you who have been believers for a very long time, but you have forgotten when you stopped your mouth and realized your guilt and your sin, and you have reverted into a rut of simply judging others for being wrong, may we look at this world and see that no matter what's going on in politics or in any sort of other situation that, oh, sin is the problem, and that you and I would become single-issue voters, single-issue livers. How is the problem of sin going to be addressed? How can Christ be made known and manifest in this situation? Sin is the problem, but the Son is the solution. Let's pray. Father, we thank you 
For you, though we were sinners, you loved us and sent your innocent son vulnerably into hostile territory to become like that which he wanted to save. And ultimately he became all of the very worst of me. And that's a big job. But he did it. And you saw that and you didn't call the whole thing off. You went through that because you love me. And I confess, God, my inability on a daily basis to really treasure that truth. So I pray, God, for all of us that we would, that you would expand our capacity to live like we're loved, to understand all that that entails and all that that means. And Father, if there's one or more this morning who does not know you, who's not known by you, that still feels like they have some words to say to you to justify themselves, that you will stop their mouths by your Spirit. By this word, you will reveal to them the truth of who they are, but whose you would like for them to be. That they will believe that they'll step out of death into life and they will talk to someone about this further to become a Christian. And Father, for those of us who are Christians, may we live as if that were true. Not projecting some political stance, but living as though we are simply gazing at the cross and the one who removed all of our depravity from us and gave us freely his righteousness. We pray all this, God, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, hey, thanks so much for being with us. Nathan is up here at the front. I'm not telling you that just because it's trivia, but because he would love to pray with any of you that would uh, like to have prayer, anything that's going on in your life, anything that you heard this morning. I want to ask you to stand for word of benediction. If you'd like prayer, come up and see Nathan. I want to remind you to sign up for Discover Bethel, which is next Sunday. And now, may the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you, and may you reflect it. God bless. You're dismissed. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us, and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.